0: Section 25 of A Soldier's Pay by William Faulkner. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Chapter 8 San Francisco, California, April 27, 1919. My dearest sweetheart, just a line to let you know that I've gone into business, into the banking business, making money for you to give ourselves the position in the world you deserve and a home of our own. The work is congenial, talking to other people in the business that don't know anything about aviation. All they think about is going out to dance with men. Every day means one day less for us to be with you forever. All my love, yours forever, Julian. 2. Nine Day or Ninety Day or Nine Hundred Day Sensations have a happy faculty for passing away into the oblivion whence pass sooner or later, all of men's inventions. Keeps from getting the world all cluttered up. You say right off that this is God's work, but it must be a woman. No man could be so utilitarian. But then women preserve only those things which can or might be used again, so this theory is also exploded. After a while there were no more of the local curious to call. After a while, those who had said, I told you so, when Miss Cecily Saunders let it be known that she would marry the parson's son, and who said, I told you so, when she did not marry the parson's son, forgot about it. There were other things to think and talk of. This was the lying in period of the KKK, and the lying out period of Mr. Wilson, a democratish gentleman living in Washington, D.C. Besides, it was all legal now. Miss Cecily Saunders was safely married, though nobody knows where they was from the time they drove out of town in George Farr's car until they was properly married by a priest in Atlanta the next day. But then I always told you about that, girl. They all hoped for the worst, and that Mrs. What's-Her-Name, that tall, black-headed woman at Mahones, had at last married someone, putting an end to that equivocal situation, and so April became May, there were fair days when the sun, becoming warmer and warmer, rising, drank off the dew and flowers bloomed like girls ready for a ball, then drooped in the languorous fulsome heat like girls after the ball, when earth, like a fat woman, recklessly trying giddy hat after hat, trying a trimming of apple and pear and peach, threw it away, tried Narcissus and jonquil and flag. Threw it away, so early flowers bloomed and passed, and later flowers bloomed to fade and fall, giving place to yet later ones. Fruit blossoms were gone, pear was forgotten. What were once tall candlesticks, silvery with white bloom, were now tall jade candlesticks of leaves beneath the blue cathedral of sky, across which, in hushed processional, went clouds like choir boys, slow and surpliced. Leaves grew larger and greener until all rumour of azure and silver and pink had gone from them. Birds sang and made love, and married, and built houses in them, and in the tree at the corner of the house that yet swirled its white-bellied leaves in never-escaping skyward ecstasies, bees broke clover upon the lawn, interrupted at intervals by the lawnmower and its informal languid conductor. Their mode of life had not changed. The rector was neither happy nor unhappy, neither resigned nor protesting. Occasionally he entered some dream within himself. He conducted services in the dim oaken tunnel of the church, while his flock hissed softly among themselves or slept between the responses, while pigeons held their own crooning rituals of audible slumber in the spire, that arcing across motionless young clouds seemed slow and imminent with ruin. He married two people and buried one. Gilligan found this ominous and said so aloud. Mrs. Mahone found this silly and said so aloud. Mrs. Worthington sent her car for them at times, and they drove into the country regretting the dogwood. The three of them, two of them did, that is, Mahone had forgotten what dogwood was. The three of them sat beneath the tree, while one of them wallowed manfully among polysyllabics, and another of them sat motionless, neither asleep nor awake. They could never tell whether or not he heard, nor could they ever tell whether or not he knew whom he had married. Perhaps he didn't care. Emmy, efficient and gentle, mothering him, was a trifle subdued. Gilligan still slept on his cot at the foot of Mahone's bed lest he be needed. "'You two are the ones who should have married him,' his wife remarked with quiet wit." Three. Mrs. Mahon and Gilligan had resumed their old status of companionship and quiet pleasure in each other's company. Now that he no longer hoped to marry her, she could be freer with him. Perhaps this is what we needed, Joe. Anyway, I never knew anyone I liked half this much. They walked slowly in the garden along the avenue of roses, which passed beneath the two oaks, beyond which against a wall. Poplars in a restless formal row were like columns of a temple. You're easy, pleased, then, Gilligan answered with sour-assumed moroseness. He didn't have to tell her how much he liked her. Poor Joe, she said. Cigarette, please. Poor you, he retorted, giving her one. I'm all right. I ain't married. You can't escape forever, though. You're too nice. Safe for the family. We'll stand hitched. Is that a bargain, he asked. Sufficient unto the day, Joe. After a while he stayed her with his hand. Listen. They halted and she stared at him intently. What? There's that damn mockingbird again. Hear him? What's he got to sing about, you reckon? He's got plenty to sing about. April's got to be May and still spring isn't half over. Listen. Four. Emmy had become an obsession with Janarius Jones, such an obsession that it had got completely out of the realm of sex into that of mathematics like a paranoia. He manufactured chances to see her, only to be repulsed. He lay in wait for her like a highwayman. woman. He begged, he threatened, he tried physical strength, and he was repulsed. It had got to where, had she exceeded suddenly, he would have been completely reft of one of his motivating impulses, of his elemental impulse to live. He might have died. Yet he knew that if he didn't get her soon, he would become crazy, an imbecile. After a time, it assumed the magic of numbers. He had failed twice. This time, success must be his, or the whole cosmic scheme would crumble, hurling him screaming into blackness where no blackness was, death where death was not. Janarius Jones, by nature and inclination a Turk, was also becoming an Oriental. He felt that his number must come. The fact that it would not was making an idiot of him. He dreamed of her at night. He mistook other women for her, other voices for hers. He hung skulking about the rectory at all hours, too wrought up to come in where he might have to converse sanely with sane people." Sometimes the rector, tramping, huge, and oblivious in his dream, flushed him in, out-of-the-way corners of concealment, flushed him without surprise. "'Ah, Mr. Jones,' he would say, starting, like a goaded elephant. "'Good morning.' "'Good morning, sir,' Jones would reply, his eyes glued on the house. "'You're out for a walk?' "'Yes, sir. Yes, sir.' And Jones would walk hurriedly. Away, in an opposite direction, as the rector entering his dream again resumed his own. Emmy told Mrs. Mahone of this with scornful contempt. "'Why don't you tell Joe, or let me tell him?' Mrs. Mahone asked. Emmy sniffed with capable independence. "'About that worm? I can take care of him all right. I do my own fighting. And I bet you're good at it, too.' And Emmy said, "'I guess I am.' 5. April had become May, fair days and wet days in which rain ran with silver lances over the lawn, in which rain dripped leaf to leaf while birds still sang in the hushed damp greenness under the trees, and made love and married and built houses and still sang, in which rain grew soft as the grief of a young girl grieving for the sake of grief, Mahone hardly ever rose now. They had got him a movable bed, and upon this he lay, sometimes in the house, sometimes on the veranda, where the wistaria inverted its cool lilac flame while Gilligan read to him. They had done with Rome, and they now swam through the tedious charm of Rousseau's confessions to Gilligan's hushed, childish delight. Kind neighbors came to inquire. The specialist from Atlanta came once, by request— and once on his own initiative making a friendly call, and addressing Gilligan meticulously as doctor, spent the afternoon chatting with them and went away. Mrs. Mahone and he liked each other immensely. Dr. Garry called once or twice and insulted them all, and went away nattily smoking his slender rolled cigarettes. Mrs. Mahone and he did not like each other at all. The rector grew grayer and quieter neither happy nor unhappy, neither protesting nor resigned. Wait until next month. You will be stronger then. This is a trying month for invalids, don't you think so? He asked his daughter-in-law. Yes, she would tell him, looking out at the green world, the sweet, sweet spring. Yes, yes. Six. It was a postcard. You buy them for a penny, stamp and all. The post office furnishes writing material free. Got your ladder. We'll write later. Remember me to Gilligan and loot Mahone. Julian L. 7. Mahone was asleep on the veranda, and the other three sat beneath the tree on the lawn, watching the sun go down. At last the reddened edge of the disk was sliced like a cheese by the wisteria-covered lattice wall, and the neutral buds were a pale agitation against the dead afternoon Soon the evening star would be there above the poplar tip, perplexing it, immaculate and ineffable, and the poplar was vain as a girl darkly, in an arrested, passionate ecstasy. Half of the moon was a coin, broken palely near the zenith, and at the end of the lawn the first fireflies were like lazily blown sparks from cool fires. A negro woman passing crooned a religious song, mellow and passionless and sad. They sat talking quietly. The grass was becoming grey with dew, and she felt dew on her thin shoes. Suddenly, Emmy came round the corner of the house, running and darted up the steps and through the entrance, swift in the dusk. "'What in the world?' began Mrs. Mahone, Then they saw Jones, like a fat satyr, leaping after her, hopelessly distanced. When he saw them, he slowed immediately and lounged up to them, slovenly as ever. His yellow eyes were calmly opaque, but she could see the heave of his breathing. Convulsed with laughter, she at last found her voice. "'Good evening, Mr. Jones.' "'Say,' said Gilligan, with interest, "'what was you—' "'Hush, Joe,' Mrs. Mahone told him. Jones's eyes, clear and yellow, obscene and old in sin as a goat's, roved between them. "'Good evening, Mr. Jones.' The rector became abruptly aware of his presence. Walking again, eh? Running, Gilligan corrected, and the rector repeated, eh? Looking from Jones to Gilligan. Mrs. Mahone indicated a chair. Sit down, Mr. Jones. You must be rather fatigued, I imagine. Jones stared toward the house, tore his eyes away, and sat down. The canvas sagged under him, and he rose and spun his chair so as to face the dreaming façade of the rectory. He sat again. "'Say,' Pilligan asked him, "'what was you doing, anyway?' Jones eyed him briefly, heavily. "'Running,' he snapped, "'turning his eyes again to the dark house. "'Running?' the Divine repeated. "'I know. I seen that much from here. "'What was you running for?' I asked. "'Reducing, perhaps,' Mrs. Mahone remarked with quiet malice. Jones turned his yellow stare upon her, "'Twilight was gathering swiftly. "'He was a fat and shapeless mass, palely tweeded, "'Reducing, yes, but not to marriage. "'I wouldn't be so sure of that if I were you,' she told him. "'A courtship like that will soon reduce you to anything, almost.' "'Yeah,' Gilligan amended. "'If that's the only way you got to get a wife, "'you better pick out another one besides Emmy. "'You be a shadow, time you catch her.' "'That is,' he added, "'if you aim to do your courting on foot.' "'What's this?' the rector asked. "'Perhaps Mr. Jones was merely preparing to write a poem. "'Living at first, you know,' Mrs. Mahone offered. "'Jones looked at her sharply. "'Atalanta,' she suggested in the dusk. "'Atalanta?' repeated Gilligan. "'What?' "'Try an apple next time,' Mr. Jones,' she advised.' "'Or a handful of salt,' Mr. Jones added Gilligan in a thin falsetto, then in his natural voice. "'But what's Atlanta got?' "'Or or a cherry, Mr. Gilligan,' said Jones viciously. "'But then I am not god, you know.' "'Shut your mouth, fellow,' Gilligan told him roughly. "'What's this?' the rector repeated. Jones turned to him heavily explanatory. "'It means, sir, that Mr. Gilligan is under the impression "'that his wit is of as much importance to me as my actions are to him.' "'Not me,' denied Gilligan with warmth. "'You and me don't have the same thoughts about anything, fellow.' "'Why shouldn't they be?' the rector asked. "'It is but natural to believe that one's actions and thoughts "'are as important to others as they are to oneself, is it not?' "'Gilligan gave this his entire attention. "'It was getting above his head, beyond his depth.' But Jones was something tangible, and he had already chosen Jones for his own. Naturally, agreed Jones with patronage. There is a kinship between the human instruments of all action and thought and emotion. Napoleon thought that his actions were important. Swift thought his emotions were important. Savonarola thought his beliefs were important, and they were. But we're discussing Mr. Gilligan. Say, began Gilligan. "'Very apt,' Mr. Jones murmured Mrs. Mahon "'above the suggested triangle of her cuffs and collar. "'A soldier, a priest, and a dyspeptic. "'Say,' Gilligan repeated, "'who's swift, anyway? "'I kind of got bogged up back there. "'Mr. Jones is, according to his own statement. "'You are Napoleon, Joe.' "'Him? "'Not quite swift enough to get himself a girl, though, "'way he was gaining on Emmy. "'You ought to have a bicycle,' he suggested.' There's your answer, Mr. Jones, the rector told him. Jones looked toward Gilligan's fading figure in disgust, like that of a swordsman who's been disarmed by a peasant with a pitchfork. That's what association with the clergy does for you, he said crassly. What is it? Gilligan asked. What did I say wrong? Mrs. Mahone leaned over and squeezed his arm. You didn't say anything wrong, Joe. You were grand. Jones glowered sullenly in the dusk. ''By the way,'' he said suddenly, ''how is your husband today?'' ''Just the same, thank you.'' Stands wedded life as well as can be expected, does he?'' She ignored this. Gilligan watched him in leashed anticipation. He continued, ''That's too bad. You had expected great things from marriage, hadn't you? Sort of a miraculous rejuvenation?'' ''Shut up, fellow,'' Gilligan told him. ''What you mean, anyway?'' "'Nothing, Mr. Galahad. Nothing at all. I merely made a civil inquiry. Shows that when a man marries, his troubles continue, doesn't it?' "'Then you oughtn't to have no worries about your troubles,' Gilligan told him savagely. "'What? I mean, if you don't have no better luck than you have twice that I know of.' "'He has a good excuse for one failure, Joe,' Mrs. Mahone said. They both looked toward her voice.' The sky was bold with still-disseminated light that cast no shadow, and branches of trees were rigid as coral in a mellow, tideless sea. Mr. Jones says that to make love to Miss Saunders would be Episcene. Episcene? What's that? Shall I tell him, Mr. Jones, or will you? Certainly. You intend to anyway, don't you? Epicine is something you want and can't get, Joe.' Jones rose viciously. If you will allow me, I'll retire, I think, he said savagely. Good evening. Sure, agreed Gilligan with alacrity, rising also. I'll see Mr. Jones to the gate. He might get mixed up and head for the kitchen by mistake. Emmy might be one of them Episcenes, too. Without seeming to hurry, Jones faded briskly away. Gilligan sprang after him, Jones sensing him. Whirled in the dusk and Gilligan leaped upon him. For the good of your soul, Gilligan told him joyously, you might say that's what running with preachers does for you, mightn't you? he panted as they went down. They rolled in dew, and an elbow struck him smartly under the chin. Jones was up immediately, and Gilligan tasting his bitten tongue sprang in pursuit. But Jones retained his lead. He has sure learned to run from somebody, Gilligan grunted. Practicing on Emmy so much, I guess. "'Wished I was Emmy now, till I catch him.' "'Jones doubled the house and plunged into the dreaming garden. "'Gilligan, turning the corner of the house, "'saw the hushed expanse where his enemy was, "'but his enemy himself was out of sight. "'Roses bloomed quietly under the imminence of night. "'Hyacinths swung pale bells waiting for another day. "'Dusk was a dream of arrested rested time. "'The Mockingbird.' Rippled it tentatively, and everywhere blooms slept passionately, waiting for tomorrow. But John's was gone. He stopped to listen upon the paling gravel between the slow, unpickable passion of roses, seeing the pale, broken coin of the moon attain a richer luster against the unemphatic sky. Gilligan stilled his heaving lungs to listen, but he heard nothing. Then he began systematically to beat the firefly-starred-scented dusk of the garden, beating all available cover, leaving not a blade of grass unturned. But Jones had got clean away. The slow hands of dusk had removed him as cleanly as the prestidigitator Reeves a rabbit from an immaculate hat. He stood in the centre of the garden and cursed Jones thoroughly on the off chance that he might be within hearing Then Gilligan slowly retraced his steps, retracing the course of the race through the palpable violet dusk. He passed the unlighted house where Emmy went somewhere about her duties, where at the corner of the veranda near the silver trees twilight musicked ecstasy. Mahone slept on his movable bed and on across the lawn, while evening, like a ship with twilight-colored sails, dreamed on down the world. The chairs were formless blurs beneath the tree, and Mrs. Mahone's presence was indicated principally by her white collar and cuffs. As he approached, he could see dimly the rector reclined in slumber, and the woman's dark dress shaped her against the dull white of her canvas chair. Her face was pallid, winged either side by her hair. She raised her hand as he drew near. He's asleep, she whispered as he sat beside her. He got away, damn him he told her in exasperation. Too bad. Better luck next time. You bet, and there'll be a next time soon as I see him again. Night was almost come. Light, all light, passed from the world, from the earth, and leaves were still. Night was almost come, but not quite. Day was almost gone, but not quite. Her shoes were quite soaked in dew. How long he has slept! She broke the silence diffidently. "'We'll have to wake him soon for supper.' Gilligan stirred in his chair, and almost as she spoke, the rector sat hugely and suddenly up. "'Wait, Donald,' he said, lumbering to his feet. With elephantine swiftness, he hurried across the lawn toward the darkly dreaming house. "'Did he call?' They spoke together in a dark, foreboding— They half-rose and stared toward the house, then at each other's indistinct white face. Did you? The question hung poised in the dusk between them, and here was the evening star, bloomed miraculously at the poplar's tip, and the slender tree was a leafed and passionate atalanta, poisoning her golden apple. No, did you? he replied, but they heard nothing. He dreamed, she said. Yes, Gilligan agreed, he dreamed. 8. Donald Mahone lay quietly conscious of unseen forgotten spring, of greenness neither recalled nor forgot. After a time, the nothingness in which he lived took him wholly again, but restlessly. It was like a sea into which he could neither completely pass nor completely go away from. Day became afternoon, became dusk, and imminent evening "'evening like a ship with twilight-coloured sails, "'dreamed down the world darkly toward darkness. "'And suddenly he found that he was passing from the dark world "'in which he'd lived for a time he could not remember, "'again into a day that had long passed, "'that had already been spent by those who lived and wept and died, "'and so, remembering it, this day was his alone, "'the one trophy he had reft from time and space, "'per ardua ad astra.' I never knew I could carry this much petrol, he thought, in unsurprised ubiquity, leaving a darkness he did not remember for a day he had long forgot, finding that the day, his own familiar day, was approaching noon. It must be about ten o'clock, for the sun was getting overhead, and a few degrees behind him. "'because he could see the shadow of his head "'bisecting in an old familiarity "'the hand which held the control column "'and the shadow of the cockpit rim across his flanks, "'filling his lap, "'while the sun fell almost directly downward upon his other hand, "'lying idly on the edge of the fuselage. "'Even the staggered lower wing was partly shadowed by the upper one. "'Yes, it is about ten, he thought, "'with a sense of familiarity.' Soon he would look at the time and make sure, but now, with the quick skill of practice and habit, he swept the horizon with a brief observing glance, casting a look above, banking slightly to see behind, all clear. The only craft in sight were far away to the left, a cumbersome observation plane doing artillery work. A brief glance divulged a pair of scouts high above it, and above these he knew were probably two more. I'd have a look, he thought, knowing instinctively that they were Huns, calculating whether or not he could reach the spotter before the protecting scouts saw him. No, I guess not, he decided. Better get on home. Fuel's low. He settled his swinging compass needle. Ahead of him and to the right, far away, what was once Ypres was like the cracked scab on an ancient festering sore. Beneath him were other shining sores, lividly, on a corpse that would not be let to die. He passed on lonely and remote as a gull. Then suddenly it was as if a cold wind had blown upon him. What is it, he thought? It was that the sun had been suddenly blotted from him. The empty world, the sky, were yet filled with lazy spring sunlight. But the sun that had been full upon him had been brushed away as by a hand. In the moment of realizing this... Cursing his stupidity, he dived steeply, slipping to the left. Five threads of vapour passed between the upper and lower planes, each one nearer his body. Then he felt two distinct shocks at the base of his skull, and vision was reft from him as if a button somewhere had been pressed. His trained hand nosed the machine up smartly, and finding the vicar's release in the darkness, he fired into the bland morning, marbled and imminent with March. Sight... "'flickered on again like a poorly made electrical contact. "'He watched holes pitting into the fabric near him "'like a miraculous smallpox, "'and as he hung poised, firing into the sky, "'a dial on his instrument board exploded with a small sound. "'Then he felt his hand, saw his glove burst, "'saw his bared bones. "'Then sight flashed off again and he felt himself lurch, "'falling until his belt caught him sharply across the abdomen.' and he heard something gnawing through his frontal bone like mice. You'll break your damn teeth there, he told them, opening his eyes. His father's heavy face hung over him in the dusk like a murdered Caesar's. He knew sight again, and an imminent nothingness more profound than any yet, while evening, like a ship with twilight-coloured sails, drew down the world, putting calmly out to an immeasurable sea. That's how it happened, he said, staring at him. End of section 25. Read by Sandra. Montreal. 2022.